right. Episode 15. Episode 15. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Unbelievable. Here we are. And Brendan, who is our guest? Our desk guest, excuse me, was Dr. Jess Matthews. She received her doctorate in behavioral health with a focus in clinical integrated care from Arizona State University. She's also the associate professor and program director at Point Loma Nazarene University, where she helped create the Masters of Kinesiology program in integrated wellness. And then she also serves as the director of integrated health coaching at UC San Diego, along with a myriad of certifications that she's had. Please check out her bio with this video because we're going to list everything that she's done there. She also has a pretty interesting TED talk that we recommend everybody go watch as well. Um, Nick, what was your favorite part of this interview? Man, the whole topic of wellness, I think, is just something that no one knows how to define. And um, she takes such a good approach at explaining like what wellness is, um, how it can be utilized in our lives. And so I think that there was just so much to take away from this conversation. Yeah, Um, I think she does a great job taking what can feel like a very overwhelming and complicated topic and helping just kind of like pull out some key points, simplify it, and like kind of put people at ease about achieving this for themselves. Yes, I agree. So and that's pretty cool. Yeah. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. We hope you enjoy this one um, as much as we do because it was, I, I loved it. And yeah, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Um, well, thanks for joining us, Dr. Matthews. We really appreciate it. And Brent and I have been really looking forward to this conversation because uh, we have conversations about this topic I feel like all the time um, but yeah we'd just like to get started by asking you a little bit about um, your background and how you got into this work so however much you want to share wonderful and thank you again for the opportunity to have this conversation I've been looking forward to this and it's always exciting to me I think to be able to talk more about wellness I'll share with you just a, a brief overview lots more detail we, we can talk about but kind of how I got started in this field of uh, what I came to learn is um, not uh, unlike many people uh, I thought my family was an anomaly but lo and behold I found out we actually aren't I grew up in a household where chronic diseases were commonplace so things like obesity heart disease type 2 diabetes these were all very familiar to me at a very young age. And also, you know, things like uh, the complications that come with those chronic diseases. So seeing the effects of things like uh, renal failure, amputations, blindness, and even premature death at ages as young as 50 and 55. Again, this was just very much known to me. And I just assumed that this was just how people lived or essentially how adults didn't live very long. And really what was the impetus for me to get started into the fields of health and wellness was I really wanted to understand not only for myself, you know, how could I potentially prevent these kind of chronic diseases that I saw, you know, dramatically impacting the people I loved most, people like my mom and my grandmother, but also, you know, how could perhaps some of the things like exercise and nutrition, how could these also be powerful treatments for these types of chronic diseases. So I share, you know, at the onset of my journey, you know, what initially was the start was I became very early on in my career an exercise professional. And I actually got my start teaching group fitness classes. And to me, being someone who was more introverted in my earlier days, no one believes me now, but in my earlier days, teaching group fitness classes 
it was so exciting to have this opportunity to empower individuals to really take ownership over their health and wellness and to do that, you know, in a community environment, you know, social wellness is such an important aspect of wellness, but really that kind of trajectory of teaching others, you know, teaching through movement that set me on the trajectory then to go on to study that formally. So I went on to study uh, things like physical education and exercise science. Uh, I knew I had a passion for teaching. And so to be able to teach others so that in turn, they could have a positive impact in their families and their communities. This was really, you know, kind of the, the foundation for the work that I did. But it started very much on the physical side of health. So as I mentioned, exercise really being the catalyst. I worked as an exercise physiologist for a number of years. And along the way, as I was working with real life people as a personal trainer, as a group fitness instructor, as now a physical education teacher, K through 12, I am licensed. I recognize that we actually work with people as whole people, right? We don't just get their bodies, which I had learned an extensive amount of information about, anatomy, phys, you name it, I know about it. But what I recognized is I actually didn't know, quite honestly, almost anything about what happens sort of from the neck up, if you will, right? We work with whole people, but yet the mental, emotional, the spiritual aspects or parts that were not part of my formal academic training. They were things later as I became a yoga teacher, I did become more interested in really understanding the spiritual aspect of wellness. And of course, myself, as someone of Christian faith, really understanding how that could be an interplay in terms of our health and well being. But ultimately, I realized I had a huge deficit, I didn't understand people enough. I understood their bodies, but lo and behold, we work with the whole person. So just to share, that's sort of what led me on a journey. My doctoral studies focused on behavioral health with a focus on clinical integrated care, because I recognize we have quite a segmentation, right? We address the mental and emotional well-being of people here. And then we address their physical bodies here, the space I had been in for a long time. And there was such a disconnect, but yet we know that to truly impact health and well-being, you have to understand the interplay between all of these dimensions of wellness and what make us human. So that's kind of a, a quick summary version of how I've arrived to where I am today and the unique lens that I think, you know, I've been afforded now the opportunity to bring to my work and to my teaching with students. Yeah, thanks for sharing. It's um, it's always so interesting to hear about background and how people get into like the field that they're in. And I'm I was telling Brendan earlier, I'm always curious about like how there are a lot of family patterns in terms of health and, and wellness and like, what was it that really kind of broke you out of some of those patterns you feel like, what was that turning point or, um, yeah, like what, what would you say in terms of that? I think for me, just, you know, knowing, and there's I mean, my family, I'm so blessed to have the family that I do and so many you know, wonderful memories from childhood and, you know, things that I think were quite formative for me, but in quite honestly, the adversity that I witnessed firsthand, you know, to have a parent, my mother's had health challenges for most of my life since, you know, the latter part of childhood, all the way, you know, up to more recent times. I think for me, what really was the catalyst to say, maybe could there be a way beyond what I had known, right? From everything from, you know, I, I, my household, I did play sports, you know, as a child, but, you know, like regular physical activity wasn't, my parents weren't regular exercisers. That wasn't 
you know, which is very, I learned once I got to, you know, my undergraduate studies, most of the people who were physical education and exercise science majors, they grew up in very athletically inclined households where parents were role models for physical activity and exercise. And they played sports and usually high level sports. And I was like the anomaly in the class because I was none of those things. But the catalyst to answer your question for me really was, I wanted to understand, could there be a better way? Because I had seen with my grandmother, so this is my mom's mother, um, things like you know the effects, as I mentioned before, of uncontrolled diabetes. My grandmother underwent multiple amputations, parts of her feet, her legs. At some point in her life, she ultimately became uh, she was bound into her bed. She didn't have the capacity of her own, you know, free will and accord to be able to do not only daily self-care practices, right, just daily, you know, habits of living, but to be able to do the things that she really enjoyed. And so I think that was, you know, some of these things were the catalyst for me to want to understand, could there be another way. And again, exercise was the doorway for me. I started, I took a job uh, very early on in my high school days, and it was not a glamorous job. I worked at, it was an all-female fitness center in the town that I lived in. And I was like cleaning toilets and checking people in and doing what I share with my students, the glamorous work. But it was actually, that was being in that environment, right? So being surrounded by people who were taking that initiative to come into the facility, right? To improve their health and well-being through regular exercise and being in that environment, having the opportunity and the mentorship from the owner of that facility. Uh, I took a lot of group fitness classes myself. That kind of became the way I found community and found new behaviors to answer your question that, you know, it showed me there could be another way. And then of course became, you know, the impetus to actually pursue professionally. But I think that was, it was the adversities that really, you know, and I share that in many points in my journey, it was sort of what could come out of the challenging times in life that could actually lead to some, you know, some pretty bright spots, even amidst, you know, things that people would say, wow, that's really difficult. But how could you take the difficult situations and transform them into something powerful, not only for my own life, but for the lives of others? Yeah, I think I I really resonate with that because I, and I don't know where I came across it. And if I really did some self-reflection, I'm sure I could find it. But I too am very much in the belief that like our, the expression of our genetics is heavily influenced by our lifestyle choices. So just because, and I think we have a lot of acceptance in our, across like the culture in the United States of like, oh man, like I have X, Y, or Z chronic illness in my family. I'm just predetermined to get that too. And people don't uh, like really take the initiative to do the things to maybe get some different expression of their of their genes and i think that's like honestly one of my favorite parts about the story you just shared with us about how you kind of came into the field is that a lot of the stuff that you're doing now came from you at like self-reflecting and addressing on okay from the shoulders up is a blind spot of mine and i need to be better at that and then you've really like done the work to like improve and gain more knowledge in the field so i think it's a you know a good lesson even for people to just like work on themselves in that way. Like just work, like developing the self is a very important part of a lot of the stuff you talked about from, you know, the physical to the spiritual also, and just like continuing to see improvement in yourself and you doing that is also hand in hand because your, your self-development is in the, the wellness space that it's, you know, I think there's a lot of really powerful things that people can take away from the stuff that you teach. 
Well, I appreciate you sharing that too. And you touch on a field that's so exciting, which is epigenetics. This is the recognition again, because, you know, I think back to earlier days, you know, in my personal life and then even in my professional pursuits, where it's not to say that genetics don't play some role. That part we know, right? We have good evidence to support that. But as you noted, Brendan, it's not the only aspect. And I think that to me is the exciting part. And, you know, part of my journey also has becoming a health and wellness coach. I'm a board certified health and wellness coach, which has been a central kind of piece of my professional equation, if you will. And I think for people to recognize that they do have this power and potential. This is so exciting to me because even people who have been diagnosed with chronic diseases and often multiple chronic diseases, right? Because they usually don't happen in isolation. So again, I use my family. My mom knows she's the case study for just about every lecture I give, every you know conversation I get to have like this. But I share what's so exciting is even when people are faced with health challenges, to have the recognition that it is possible to see improvements in their health and well-being. And that's where I say the potential, and that's where you know the lifestyle-related aspect does come in. Now, I do feel like very compelled, though, to share because I think as we, again, that epigenetics lens to say, yes, we do know the things we do lifestyle-wise can actually affect our gene expression. Like this is the science that we know that again, it's exciting. It's saying we're not predisposed to having to live this certain life. There are facets that essentially are within our control, right? Kind of an internal locus of control versus external, like world just happens to me. And, you know, I'm kind of victim of my circumstance. However, I do always feel compelled to address because I hear this come up often, and especially with chronic diseases that are complex, like obesity, where people say, you know, it's willpower. It's a lack of motivation. And that is so incorrect. And I feel very compelled to say that is one facet of a multifaceted equation, which is the fact that you kind of touched on this. It's an ecological perspective we need to bring to this, to recognize it's not only interpersonally, right? Like what we do or our relationships we have or intrapersonally, us ourselves, our beliefs, our attitudes, our actions, but it's all the other layers of that ecological model, right? Societally, the things that impact what food choices people might have access to, right? Our neighborhoods safe to go walk in. People say, oh, go walk. People don't realize that's not always, you know, available to all people in all communities they live. So I think that's another helpful piece that, you know, and I always aspire to bring to my teaching and to my professional work is to recognize it's not only squarely on the shoulders of individuals, though excitingly, there's things we can do that can help us take ownership of our health and well-being. But we do also as professionals have to have more of that, you know, kind of broader view and recognize there are many different facets, not only genetics. Genetics is like one small piece, as you noted, but there's other variables we do need to consider from policy to community to societal aspects that do influence our health and well-being. Yeah, I think that's so true because one of the things that as only honestly I've only really heard talked about fairly recently is like in looking more at like the um like the approach to the obesity epidemic or however you would however it should be uh referred to as but the one thing that i was really shocked to hear is that from like an evolutionary standpoint humans were designed to consume calories at the fear that these calories were at one point not going to be available because you know we were going to go through periods of feasts and famine and in a lot of ways you know 
you can, we can blame the food industry for making hyper palatable foods, or we can blame, you know, the narrative in society as it being for a long time, just about your willpower, which I don't think is, is completely true. Um, you know, we are wired genetically, most likely to have wanted to be like, I'm going to have a period where I'm not going to have calories. So we're designed to eat, 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 because we weren't always going to have the food there. And I haven't heard that message pushed out. I mean, because I think what an empowering thought for somebody who may be feeling like, man, this is completely my willpower, you know, to think that, you know what, I'm like, I'm doing what I'm genetically designed to do. And maybe I just need to like tweak some things around me to help prevent myself Mm. from just expressing what my body and my genes want to do, which is make sure I have food. So I think that's like a, you know, an important piece too, to that, to the point that you just made of that, like, it's not just on the willpower story. There's so much more going on there. And I think it's really important to address the, that as a fact that we, we have more than we have the power in every circumstance to always make our own choices. But there are absolutely circumstances where, you know, these things aren't necessarily our fault. It's not all about us making our own choices. So, yeah. Absolutely. And it's such an important piece that you bring up with this, because even, you know, to, to go into the world of psychology and to think about, you know, individuals like Carl Rogers, right? When we talk about things like unconditional positive regard, you know, we know that unhealthful behaviors, things like, you know, eating unhealthful foods, drinking too much, right? Other behaviors that we know are risk factors for all chronic diseases. So I think that's the, like diabetes isn't vastly different from obesity, isn't vastly different from cardiovascular disease. They share so much commonalities in terms of the risk factors and also the other piece, not only prevention, but the treatment aspect. And that's really a whole exciting specialty called lifestyle medicine, where we look to these evidence-based approaches to say, how do we actually treat and even put into remission these various chronic diseases. But the piece that you were just talking about, this unconditional positive regard is we know when people are met with things like blaming and shaming and judgment for their health behaviors. Now, again, disclaimer, this isn't saying that our own personal choices don't play a role because again, they do. But if we only looked at that, we would not be painting a complete picture. And so what we actually know, and this is where, you know, so much of my professional work and so much of my teaching, because I have the privilege of teaching health professionals, everyone from registered nurses to registered dietitians to aspiring medical doctors and physicians assistants and exercise professionals. The key piece is we do know when people are met with compassion and acceptance and understanding these are actually the winning ingredients that help people enact and sustain those health behaviors that we do know impact health and well-being. So again, it's, it's kind of a shift in our approach as professionals, but it is also this recognition that it is multifaceted, the kinds of influences on our health and our well-being. So yes, it is beyond just motivation and just willpower in addressing you know, these chronic complex health conditions, which remind us, this is why we need to have a multi-dimensional perspective on health and wellness and an understanding. I teach a course called Mind Body Medicine. You were alluding to our own innate kind of hardwired design. And it's so true. We are designed to, you know, actually crave those palatable foods. That's why, you know, we could get into a whole food industry discussion, (laughs) but, you know, to crave those things, because again, by biological evolution, as you shared, that's something we are hardwired to do. 
Now, here's the challenge. And this is why we need a mind-body perspective. We do also know when we encounter things like chronic stress, right? Our stress response is hardwired, but it's not designed to be activated as frequently as it is and for as long as it is in our current modern society, right? To just be like daily commutes cause us stress and the email inbox, you know, number of emails in my inbox cause stress. Should be the occasional lion. (laughs) Exactly. exactly. It's a little different what we're living in nowadays, but you know what? The hardwired response actually hasn't changed. And so we have to understand what's happening from a physical and a psychological perspective and how that in turn, things like chronic stress, how that actually leads us to make certain food choices. This is based on, you know, as we have more chronic stress, we have higher levels of glucocorticoids, things like cortisol, many people are familiar with. Cortisol isn't bad in and of itself. Too much of it does do things like prompt us to eat certain types of foods, those that are generally more palatable, things that are higher in sugars and fats. And also it disrupts things like our sleep because cortisol follows a circadian rhythm. But if it's constantly, cortisol levels are constantly higher and higher, we start to see disruption in terms of those health behaviors. So that's why it's important. Again, instead of looking at, you know, I think of my professional journey, exercise kind of in isolation from nutrition, like, yeah, those two go hand in hand, but we kind of view them separately as professionals. We have to understand, and this is where, as we understand the whole person and also understand the interplay between various health behaviors, now we start to really have the clarity and the lens by which to truly impact people's health and well-being in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think before we even go further, I, I really enjoyed the TED talk that you gave on reclaiming wellness. And um, I think of wellness as a term almost similar to mindfulness in the context of um, like we all preach it and we all talk about it, but it's it's hard to identify like what it is. Um, so I, I was hoping that you could just share a little bit about like what you've come to in terms of like defining wellness. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the continuum as well. So if you could share a little bit about that as well. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that the TED Talk resonated with you and you're spot on. I love, you know, in one breath, I love that wellness has become a term that is more commonplace, right? I see it on the cover of magazines. <laughs> I see it all over the internet and I appreciate and love that. Same with mindfulness. I'm a longtime yoga and meditation teacher myself. So again, I believe in all of these things so strongly. And as things become more mainstream, sometimes it becomes a bit more difficult to really understand what is it that we're actually talking about. So I do appreciate the opportunity to be able to say, well, what really is wellness? And to share, wellness doesn't have one universally accepted definition. And so I think sometimes that leads to the challenges as well. Mindfulness has a good operational definition from John Kabat-Zinn, right? Creator of mindfulness-based stress reduction. But there's also different interpretations and variations. So one of the things I think is so helpful, and I actually literally the first week of classes I have with my graduate students who are in an integrative wellness graduate program is really first and foremost to define things like what is health and what is wellness, terms we use so readily but yet there is that lack of understanding. And so I first always describe health because here's the exciting thing. This isn't new revolutionary ideas that you know health and wellness is multifaceted because from the late 1940s, 1948 to be specific, the World Health Organization has defined health as a complete state of physical, mental, and social well-being. 
So we're going back a while now. This isn't like new news hitting the block. That aspect of being physical, mental, and social was known back then. And it's not only the absence of disease and infirmity. That's the complete definition of health from the WHO. And so what I like to do, and I shared in the TED Talk, which of course would encourage anyone to take a peek at because, you know, it really was an opportunity to be able to better conceptualize wellness and then in turn reclaim our own wellness, right? That autonomy piece that we know is so powerful in terms of the ownership of our health and our well-being. But in that definition from health from the WHO, I think what's so important is often we use this kind of point, and this is a point I made in that TED talk, we use this point of like, if you don't have any discernible disease or illness, well, inherently, then you are quote, well. And what we know though is wellness, if we look to some other definitions and models of wellness, is that wellness doesn't happen at a particular point. It's not like you arrive here and now you live well. Uh, We know that wellness is an ongoing journey. And I love that. I love that kind of idea that it's never ending. And no matter where you're starting from in the journey, right? So no matter what challenges you might be facing now, related to your health, for example, you can always be moving in the direction of wellness. So that's always possible and accessible for people at all times. Now, this requires a bit of a paradigm kind of shift for us because in healthcare and more traditional models of health, we kind of operate on a treatment paradigm. It's basically like if you're sick right now, right, you have some type of chronic disease or illness, we just, you know, kind of work to get you at least to a manageable point of kind of, you know, that neutral point where we say, okay, well, now you're well, right? If you have kind of this managed, you're well. But we recognize, and I use a definition of wellness from Dr. Halbert Dunn, going back decades. Again, like I'm just, I'm reporting the news. I didn't make the news. But going back decades where Dr. Dunn, he shared, you know, wellness isn't this uninteresting state of unsickness. Rather, wellness is this fascinating ever-changing panorama of life itself in which we're invited to explore all of its dimensions. And that speaks to the fact that wellness is multidimensional. And every model of wellness shows this. They might have slight differences, but their common ground, which I love to look at the common themes, not the differences, common themes, is that wellness is multidimensional. And using that definition of health from the WHO, we know it involves mental, physical and social well-being, but we've also been illuminated to know it includes other things like social well-being. And boy, is the literature rich on the power of social connection on our health and well-being and our longevity. And so I think that, you know, starts to help us conceptualize that, again, wellness doesn't happen at a point. Wellness isn't only if you're unsick, that wellness is always possible no matter where you're starting from. You can always be moving in that direction towards more optimal well-being. Yeah, you know, something that you said just kind of triggered a thought in my head. There was a there was a report that came, and even actually two things that you said. So there was a report that came out of the Harvard Divinity School called How We Gather, and it looked at a lot of the different connected aspects of um, well, the main the main focus was to find millennials and younger generations were reporting a high level of spirituality, but a lower level of interest in religion or something of that nature. So they sought out to find organizations that existed out there that would um, that were basically surrogate 
religions in a sense where people were getting the traditional community connectedness that um, you even just spoke about as being an integrate uh, a key part of the wellness story. Um, and they were finding that a lot of these health and wellness type companies like a soul cycle, for example, are the types of places where people who are, you know, seeking spirituality in their life are going to find a community. And like, I thought that was so fascinating because even as you were just describing the, like the role of community and connectedness and the social aspect of health and well-being. It's so interesting because you also brought up the idea of how earlier, how you think that your your personal faith may have some and just people's faith in general may have a piece to the the equation. So I, would you be able to maybe touch on the what role you think, you know, I think really all religions can kind of provide this for the little community that they form. So how do you feel that the religious piece or the church or the community or however we want to define that um, serves the well-being and the wellness um, story. When we look to, again, that multidimensional view of wellness, one of the key dimensions, and in fact, there's a model, again, there's many models of wellness, but there's one model, it's called the wheel of wellness, where, and again, showing these multiple dimensions of wellness, oftentimes they're presented almost like a pie chart style, right? Kind of just like slices of the greater whole. But the wheel of wellness is actually a very interesting model and their depiction of wellness at the center, basically where all the other dimensions of wellness stem from is spiritual well-being. So you'll see spiritual well-being addressed in all of the models of wellness or just about all of them. But that model in particular, I think, you know, poses an interesting question to us is perhaps is there a foundation from which these other dimensions of wellness are really nourished? And so the spiritual aspect, and I think this is always helpful as well, and, you know, of course, I am at Point Loma Nazarene University. We're a decidedly Christian institution. So this is a topic I love leaning into with individuals. But really, first and foremost, you know, it's important to understand kind of spiritual wellness. Again, definitions sometimes help to give us context. And then to also know the layers within that dimension. So when we think about spiritual wellness, really some of the key themes we're talking about are really a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And that's really helpful because right away, this starts with kind of the 30,000 foot view, if you will, right before we then get into maybe sort of the 20 or 10,000 foot view, where we talk about religion as a facet within spiritual wellness. So I find that that's helpful just having taught in you know, different settings, having the opportunity to speak with many different people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds and faith to recognize that spiritual wellness, in my humble opinion, this is essential for all of our collective health and well-being. The next layer, again, the religious aspect then has some, you know, opportunities for individuals depending on their personal beliefs. But if we stay with that piece of spirituality being really about meaning and purpose, and this also connects so beautifully with the social aspect, which I think that's where often, you know, our religious beliefs and practices really provide such that sense of community. But at the end of the day, it's really our connection with something greater than ourselves. And so obviously as someone of Christian faith, you know, our connection with God, the recognition that, you know, the things in our lives are part of a much greater whole. So it kind of transcends just beyond you or I. I think as we lean into that piece of wellness, this meaning and purpose in life, again, we can look to the literature because I love to look to the literature. There's so much exciting information about what we see when people do have 
greater meaning and purpose in their life, what that translates to in terms of their health, their healing, and ultimately their overall well-being and longevity. So it's helpful, again, I think, just to have that lens of spiritual wellness being a dimension of wellness and within that being religious practices. And again, that can look so many different ways for different people, but really ensuring that that is a critical place of our wellness that we do spend time nurturing and leaning into. And I think especially some of the the age demographics you mentioned, teaching at a university, I think especially for younger generations, especially at a time where, goodness, the last year has been really difficult, not only from a global pandemic, but also, you know, social issues that really have become even more clear for individuals, things we need to address as a society, but to really ensure that we're nurturing, not just what we're doing physically, right? Eating well and exercising, which are so important, it's never to downplay those, but they're only pieces of the collective whole, a part of the broader equation. Yeah, I I thoroughly appreciate how you take in all these different contexts of people's lives because you're thinking about Brennan mentioned Soul Cycle, and I don't think I ever saw it as a community because it's not something that I engage in. Um, but yeah, these things like CrossFit or any type of team sport is a sense of community, and it's a place to where you like create goals and you support one another. And you want the best outcomes for each other. And yeah, thinking about the pandemic, like all these things were taken away um, from kids, adults, uh, several different types of people. And I mean, even just seeing how people were longing for like professional sports to return, they wanted that sense of community in there, like as a fan and as a participant in that sense. Um, So it's just so universal. Uh, And I think there's been so much change and um, different adversities that people have had to face over the past year uh, that I think are important to talk about. But I also wanted to provide you with the space to share a little bit about the program um, at Point Loma and kind of how you're putting all these different things into the classroom and into the minds of, of students, because that, like we're saying, there's like so much here. So I guess, how do you uh, share this information in a way that hopefully keeps the students with an open mind, um, but also informs them about these different topics. That's a, it's a tall order when I think about it. When I think about, yeah. wow, there's so much depth to this, right? There's breadth and there's depth to this. When we talk about topics like health and wellness, I mean, it isn't, we, we could take that narrow kind of compartmentalized perspective, but we would be missing the opportunity to truly have the impact in the lives of the people we're called to serve, right? Whether that's patients in a clinical setting, whether that's in a community setting, often underserved communities, that's an area that I think there's so much tremendous opportunity and a place many of my students are really passionate about serving. But if we did take that limited view, it would maybe be easier to do that, but we'd be missing the opportunity. And so I'd share, you know, really ultimately what brought me to Point Loma Nazarene University in in 2016 was actually to develop the Master of Kinesiology in Integrative Wellness Program, which to me, you know, of course, I'm highly biased because it's very close to my heart. But to me, it was really, it's been the synthesis of everything that I personally and professionally explored. Because I do think that's such a key piece. And Brendan, you touched on this earlier and something we are very passionate about. We have a saying in our program, we practice what we preach. And I think that's so important because there's so much we gain from real lived experiences 
that then also inform our professional practice. In addition to, of course, understanding the evidence base and the other things we know as good evidence-based practitioners. But to me, really, the integrative wellness program is the synthesis of what I recognized was a disconnect between various fields of study. So the cool thing is we work with real life humans, as I mentioned before. The challenging thing is we work with real life humans and they're, they're complex. And so what it necessitates is us having an understanding and pulling information from different fields of study. I love that in colleges and universities, the, the term interdisciplinary has come up. And of course, I'm like a big fan. But then I'm like, but what does it look like in practice? And for our program, that's what it is actually in practice is we've taken information, both knowledge and skills. Because I think knowledge is power, but it's knowledge translated into action that is everything. So how do we equip professionals, whether like I mentioned, they are registered nurses or registered dietitians or practicing physical therapists or aspiring medical doctors or exercise professionals and health and wellness coaches. Ultimately, they all need the same shared foundational knowledge. So they need specialized knowledge, right, in their individual's areas. A dietitian knows a lot about nutrition. An exercise professional knows a lot about exercise. We need those levels of specialization, but they all need a shared foundation of what really are these core components that truly influence health and well-being, not only from a preventative perspective. Because I think just again, back in my own journey, so much of it was preventative focus. Like how do you prevent having things like cardiovascular disease or type two diabetes, but also how these powerful lifestyle habits, right? These health behaviors, how do they actually also help to treat these chronic diseases and optimize health and well-being? So for our program, it really has been a synthesis from fields like behavioral science, right? Understanding models and theories of health behavior change. Things that I'll just share, because I love sharing from my own experience. I didn't learn any of these things earlier on in my journey, yet here I was ultimately in the field, kind of banging my head against the wall going, why aren't the people doing the things I've told them to do, right? That The classic expert approach, like I, it comes from a well-intentioned place, right? I think of motivational interviewing, you likely are both very familiar with the writing reflex, right? Like we want to put people on a better path, right? We the reason we do these things, we tell people what they should do, we kind of lecture and preach at them, is because we actually want what's best for people. But what we know from a behavioral science perspective is that's actually not how people change. <laughs> so to me, I was like, why are we not teaching this to the very people who are alongside patients and clients in terms of their health and wellness journey? Why don't they understand not only the theoretical concepts, but then, as I mentioned, most importantly, how that translates into actual practice, into the work with the patients or the clients that we serve. So our program blends things from, you know, lifestyle medicine, that's understanding those evidence-based therapeutic approaches, things like, you know, positive social connection, healthful diet, predominantly a whole food plant-based diet, things like regular physical activity and exercise, how these things actually not only help to prevent chronic disease, but treat and even put those diseases into remission. So we kind of blend lifestyle medicine with behavioral medicine, again, an understanding of some of those key things that come from fields like psychology. And we fuse them together in a way that equips students with, again, the knowledge and skills they need to make an impact 
in the lives of the people that they serve. So to me, I guess, long story short, there's so much more I could say about it. But to me, this really is, this is the foundation that I humbly believe every health related professional needs. And then please layer on with deeper knowledge and skill in certain segments. But if we only take a segmented approach, we're missing the opportunity to see chronic disease rates actually decline. They've not been declining, they've only been increasing. We actually have the opportunity to increase the number of people, the percentage of people who engage in the healthful behaviors we know actually prevent and treat chronic diseases. That number has been stagnant for far too long. So to me, I've always just said, what's the missing link? To me, biasly, yet humbly, I think what we're teaching in the program is that. Well, I think that's a great point because I, I love the the saying that like a segmented focus is only going to yield segmented results. So if you only think about one thing, you're only going to get results in one aspect. But as we've alluded to this whole conversation, this is such a holistic type of a, like, you can't just look at one slice of the health and wellness. Like you said, the wheel model has multiple spokes coming out of it and there's a foundation and there's all these other pieces that are a key part. And I think the thing that I, that kind of leads me to like, I think really my favorite part and the way I like to think about what you've kind of done with shaping the program is you've kind of you know, you're kind of like a DJ of the health and wellness field and you're curating like the greatest hits of, of like the health and wellness space. And like, and yeah, like you're, you're providing such a great foundation for people. And you touched on one thing that I think Nick and I talk about a lot too, which is like the idea of adherence to a program or a, and you know, with the, the, cognitive behavioral therapy type approach of like looking at like, what are we going to be able to do to make, you know, actionable changes in what people do? Um, What have you found as far as how people can go from like this January 1st mindset and hold on to that and, and like really establish themselves into like maintaining a program? It's such a big question of exactly that. How do we shift the perspective of the individuals that we serve, because there is this, you know, kind of new month, right? I'll start on April 1st. I'll start on January 1st. I'll start next week. Uh, That has been very pervasive. And I think, you know, again, in an ecological perspective, there's outside influences that also shape maybe the way we think about various health behaviors. That's a whole different topic for a whole nother episode of like nutrition, for example, just uh, many of the misconceptions and misinformation that then shapes, you know, the way people think and in turn, the way people act. So you've given me the perfect talking point there, Brendan, of, you know, using something again, this is why it's helpful to look across various fields. I love being the DJ. Now I'm going to use that. The DJ. Yeah, use it. <laughs> it's, the, it's the synthesis, though. That's really the disconnect has been, you know, all of these things offer value, yet they remain in isolation. And that's the disconnect is how do we synthesize sort of the best of the greatest hits, as you said. Yeah. But you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapies, which this is so essential. And again, I share, if you don't come from a psychology background, Oftentimes, this is information you're not as privy to, which is that dynamic interplay between the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act or behave. And so this is so essential. We have to understand, again, kind of the foundation of things, because if we do want to shape the way people actually go about enacting, and then ultimately in turn, like you said, sustaining, adhering to these health behaviors, because that's really where the benefits come from, is when you do it and you do it consistently over time. We have to understand, you know, how people think, how people feel, and in turn, how that impacts how they act. 
But I'd share, you know, such, again, looking to theories and models of health behavior change, we can, again, take pieces from various models and theories. But something that came up before, we were talking about social connection, right? That being such a key piece. We could look to a theory like self-determination theory, where we know key ingredients, people's psychological needs that they're striving to have met. People want to feel in control in their lives. People want autonomy, right? Like, isn't this the essence of being human? Like, we want free will. We want to be in control. And so I think, you know, to some extent, the way we as professionals work with individuals, this is the essence of a health and wellness coaching approach, is the recognition that people are in the driver's seats of their own lives. So, so often people are just told what to do, right? They're told, follow this diet, do this thing. You, you should be doing this. And lo and behold, maybe for a blip in time, they do it and then they don't sustain it because we know people have to be integrally involved and really in the, the driver's seat of leading that change. So I think from a professional lens, the way we work with people helps to shape the way in which people go about making these changes because they need to be self-directed. People really need to you know, awaken to this, have this awareness that Yes, this is something, you know, here's where I am now. Here's my vision of what's possible for me. And then start to bridge the disconnect between those two. And so this is like a very crude way of just breaking down health and wellness coaching. But ultimately, then the next piece is how do we do that in actionable ways that people leverage their own expertise in their own lives? This is like sounds easy in theory, but it's like mind blowing from an expert approach where, you know, as experts, it's like, well, I went to school, I have all these degrees, I have all these certifications, I go to all the conferences, like I have all the expertise. But people live with themselves 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they actually know a lot about themselves more than I ever will as a professional. Now, when we partner together, my professional expertise with their lived expertise on their own lives, that's exciting. And when we can both contribute to the development then of small, actionable steps, right? We hear this all the time, like start small, but really like what is the actionable step that will just move us in the direction towards that vision of what's possible for their health and well-being? And from there, we know when we get momentum built, it's kind of like the law of inertia, right? Like a body that is in motion stays in motion. It's like once you generate some momentum, you have kind of a win with a small action step, lo and behold, we know, and this is actually shown in models and theories of behavior change, that that actually becomes momentum and a catalyst towards more and more change and more consistent engagement in that behavior. So hopefully that gives some insight of, you know, it takes a different approach from a professional lens, but it also is the opportunity for people to become more engaged in their own journey because so and when we think about the relationships people have, think about, and this is no knock, I work with many wonderful medical doctors in my professional work, but often the approach we take is time's a limiting factor, right? Ecological model, the healthcare system is really a sick care system. And so the limitations is like, we just kind of bark at people what to do. And lo and behold, then we're like, why aren't they doing it? And I think it, it implores us as professionals to think, could there be something we could be doing different in best service to the people that we serve? Yeah, I think I really like the approach you even just said at the end there of starting somebody off. I think in society, we are so like instant gratification. We make it sound like it's going to be this big, easy task mm. to like get your health back in order. Like it's just one, you know, juice cleanse challenge away from like you being back on track to perfect health. But 
I think in a lot of ways, we need to completely reverse the way we approach getting like, like you're saying, small steps, maybe it's one workout a week, just to get somebody into the habit. And eventually, like you said, once they start going, they're going to be like, maybe I can do two. You know, I think I'm ready for two. But all the while you're building the habit way easier than if you were just beating somebody down with a five workout a day plan. And I feel like too easy, too much. We try and pander to people's impatience. Mm -hmm. And instead of like, you're saying being the professional and being like, no, you don't need that. And being really the person who knows and giving them the small steps that you know, are going to build the long-term results. So I think, I think that's a great piece of advice for people who may be like looking for a way to like, get started again is like, don't judge yourself, be fully accepting of where you're at. And just know that if you do one little thing this week, and then the next week, and then the next week and keep building and building, then like you can totally achieve like the health and wellness goal. You can continue to push yourself along the, uh, I think it was the dead illness wellness spectrum. You can continue to push yourself towards better and better wellness. And like you said, that's an ever, ever distancing mark. There is no end to the wellness journey. And I think that that's the, such the exciting piece to me. I look at it as not like, because I do think we have a lot of that, in, you know, the need for something instant, right? And again, society shapes a lot of this in many different ways, shapes and forms. But that illness wellness continuum we were mentioning, which is a model from Dr. John Travis from the 1970s that, you know, it really does depict, it has arrows kind of on both ends, but that arrow moving, as I mentioned before, in the direction of wellness it just, it's an ever, never ending, you know, kind of journey of possibilities. And I think that's what feels so exciting to me. And I think it does necessitate, as you were just sharing, it does necessitate a perspective shift, which is that, you know, we kind of live in, not to use, you know, various cognitive distortions, but we live in kind of this like all or nothing type of mentality all the time, right? Working out's a perfect example. Either I'm going to the gym five days a week and working out for 60 minutes, or I'm doing nothing at all. And I always like to think life happens so beautifully in the middle of that beautiful spectrum, right? You got to have the black and the white ends and the gray areas like, oh, there's so much richness there. And we often overlook that. So again, this is why it's important to understand the way people think, the way people feel in turn affects the way that they act. And so even, you know, to help you know, kind of prompt those perspective shifts. This is much of the work, again, building from various fields of study. That is health and wellness coaches. We kind of take that perspective, utilizing a strengths-based approach, because I think so often how so many health behaviors are positioned, it's through the deprivation mentality. What can I not eat, right? What do I have to do? What should I should be doing? And I think as we shift towards more of this strengths-based approach, right, how do people leverage their own unique innate strengths to move them towards that, you know, kind of vision of wellness. I keep using like my true North kind of (laughs) analogy, but moving in that direction of what truly is possible for them. And I love even the perspective shift. Sometimes some reframing is very helpful of like, I'll use nutrition. It's often presented. And again, what can't I have? And what's so exciting if we actually get, look, I won't even get into dissecting all the various dietary patterns and fad diets that are out there. But if we look at the common foundation, it actually is what can I add to what I'm doing, right? If I change nothing about what I'm doing, except add something to it. So notice it's not, what should I stop doing? First and foremost, I like to look, what could I be adding, 
right? Could I be adding more leafy greens or whole grains, right? I think that is such an exciting possibility for individuals too, to look at what can I add? Because often when we add things, then we start to, as we add those things, we start to then as a byproduct, start to, you know, kind of fall by the wayside. Some of those things that maybe are unhealthful, same thing with exercise. What could I be adding? How could I add more movement to my day? Right? Not, I have to have it look like this, but to explore the plethora of possibilities for how we can live a more rich, engaging life that sets us up to thrive. Yeah, there's, there, I feel like there's just such a, we're really missing like acknowledging our own progress. So like, I feel like I, I experience this a lot in work, like clinically with clients of, um, we identify a problem that they're maybe facing and um, we're working on <clears throat> like, getting rid of that problem or maybe accepting it. And each week it's like, Oh, I experienced it this way. I experienced it this way. And it's like, well, did you experience it a little less? And they're like, yeah, actually. And it's like, Oh, maybe we should talk a, a little bit more about that. And like with something like fitness, me getting into like working out and weightlifting, it's such a slow progression that you experience that like, you don't even notice it yourself. And then maybe somebody is like, Oh, wow. Like, looks like you've been like going to the gym or you've been running or walking or doing something, changing your lifestyle. And you're like, Oh yeah, I guess I do feel a little different or maybe I am doing a little better. Um, but we're, we're too hard on ourselves sometimes. Like we don't acknowledge these growths or these positives, um, about these little changes that we're making. And it can be something so subtle as like, Oh, I had an extra glass of water today. Um, but no, it's, uh, why didn't I drink a gallon? <laughs> Exactly. And that, you know, Nick, you say it's so perfect, but that's really that opportunity to shift perspective or even expand our perspective, right? The fact that these small changes do actually add up to big results, right? Because small things done consistently, that is the secret sauce because it's the consistency piece where, you know, exercise is in medicine, food is in medicine, unless the medicine, quote unquote, is taken consistently. And so that's the key piece. And that's where I've always said to myself, why are we not equipping exercise professionals, nutrition professionals, and others with an understanding of behavioral science? Because that's the key piece. Yes, information, knowledge is power. But like I said, it's knowledge translated into action. So to take even that shift from a professional lens and, you know, your work you're doing clinically with clients, the work that I do also clinically with patients, both clinical practice and even our research studies, which really are centered around, you know, most of our research studies at the moment are centered around the use of food as medicine, again, predominantly a whole food plant-based diet. The opportunity that we can take no matter, you know, what context we're working in, what professional hat we're wearing is to help people, as you said, really see the quote wins, right? The successes that they're having, the recognition again, because it's an ongoing journey. Wellness is this ongoing journey. So there's always opportunities to continue to grow and evolve and challenge ourselves. But to see a combination of kind of those, you know, product goals we often think about, right? Like I want to lose X pounds, right? Often something like you said, it's going to take time to see that end outcome. But the process goals, enjoying the journey, right? You hear that quote used, but enjoying the journey in terms of even our health behaviors, right? The fact that we've added that glass of water, right? We added that additional serving of, you know, green leafy vegetables to our diet. To see those as wins and momentum that builds in an exciting direction, 
I think as professionals, that's one of the things we can help to do is shine a light, so to speak, on our clients or patients, their strengths, their actions. And that's where, you know, skills, again, borrowing from various fields and different, you know, methods like motivational interviewing, affirmations are so powerful. Because so often we're seeing ourselves through that deficit mindset, right? We should be doing more. We could be doing this. Why didn't I do this? And we're failing to see actually the bright spots on the journey. So that's, again, another lens as professionals, we can help to support the individuals we're called to serve. Yeah. I was, you also mentioned something earlier about how we we can you know broaden our perspective on what like living a healthy lifestyle means like even just looking at our day and we you mentioned that like so many people stay so locked in on like this i've got this 60 minute window to get all my fitnessing in today but mm-hmm. there's a lot i think that um you know people can do maybe around like the idea of lifestyle design in a way where we can try and promote more physical activity throughout the day rather than just being like, I have an office job and I'm sitting all day. So I have to use my 60 minutes just to like write the scale. But like, then we're never making any progress because we're just writing the scale and like not moving forward on that wellness continuum. So how can people, you know, where do you see that lifestyle design, like specifically around people's work life um, being like, of value and what are maybe some things that are like some best practices people can do to like just promote more physical activity throughout their day to combat that sedentary lifestyle. This perspective is so helpful because I think one of the greatest tensions people face is, you know, we kind of have these ideas, I'll call them the tactics, right? There's different tactics or approaches we can take to improve our health and well-being. The challenge many people have is they say, but exactly, I work, you know, an office job, I sit at a desk 10 hours a day. So like, how will this fit into my life? This goes back to why it's so helpful to leverage the insights and expertise of the people we work with. Because instead of me just saying, hey, you should do this, you should do this, right? This approach works they'll know what's congruent with their actual life. So it's helpful to know kind of what does life look like now? And then that kind of lifestyle design, as you mentioned, how can we optimize our day to day, recognizing that life is dynamic and multifaceted. And yes, you know, your your job all of a sudden, maybe from a desk based job isn't going to become a highly active job. But how can you architecturally design the rest of your day, knowing that there are things that you can do amidst these kind of components in your life that can do things like increase the amount of physical activity you have in your day. So to use that as an example, you know, here's what's exciting. And again, I love presenting information to people that hopefully they'll find exciting and empowering, which is we know the current physical activity guidelines that are put forth by the American College of Sports Medicine, they've evolved over the years, as all great things do that are informed by science. And one of the things that we know now is any amount of physical activity. So it used to be, you know, it took various iterations. The last iteration prior to the most current was activity had to be kind of um, accumulated in 10 minute bouts. Now the science says any amount of physical activity you get. So if you have a minute, amazing. All of those things contribute to improved health and well-being. So we can accumulate physical activity throughout the day. In addition to also having structured 
exercise, right? So again, definitions are helpful, but structured exercise or workouts, this is not to say one or the other. Because again, I hear that come up in our field a lot of like, just telling people to move more is detracting from, you know, the power of you know, structured exercise. It should be a both and, both and, so not one or the other. But let's look at the piece of how do we design our lives to move more? I'll give an example. I'm standing at my standing desk right now, having this conversation with you. I think it's so exciting to see the opportunities for people who do work more desk-based jobs to say, how could I integrate even more movement, whether that's standing you know, intermittently or consistently throughout the day? How do I integrate breaks into the day? There's many exciting research studies that have shown even building in little one-minute breaks or upwards of five-minute breaks into your day can have significant improvements in terms of health and well-being. So to look at it not as that all or nothing type of mentality, but to say, if I know I work a desk-based job, you know, could there be ways I can design my environment to more optimally promote physical activity? You know, that of course you can explore many more tactics. Can I set a calendar reminder? Can I set something on my phone that pings me when it is time to stand up, maybe go fill a glass of water, take a break? Could I consider ways that I could could commute more actively, right? So if I live near my work, could I be biking or walking? Could I run errands, biking or walking? Again, looking for those opportunities. I think when we look at it that way, it becomes this, if I don't make that 60 minute workout, it's the recognition that's not the only way we can improve our physical activity and our overall health. So hopefully that offers some insights. But I think, again, we can look to the science to say, we now know and the guidelines state, any amount of physical activity will lead to improvements in health. And excitingly, for people who are sedentary right now, will leave a very sedentary lifestyle, even small changes in terms of the amount of activity they get can actually have pretty significant improvements in terms of their health and well-being. Yeah, I love that because I think one of the things like with you know everything that's been going on this last year, I've I have started working from home and I've, you know, it took me a little bit of time at first to kind of like come to this conclusion, I think, but, um, utilizing my lunch break to get a small 10 minute workout in or something like that, just to like keep my body moving throughout the day has had a noticeable impact on just my sustained energy level throughout the day. So yeah, I, I can't advocate as a, uh, you know, like an N of one, case study on myself type of a situation, like doing something small, absolutely is, is it impactful on how, how you can feel throughout the day? I, Cause I'm, you know, from personal experience, I definitely feel better when I do a small something in the day, even if it's try and just like walk up and down the block while I, if I'm on a call and I get a chance to, I can put my headphones in and, and all that. So yeah, I, I love that idea. So, and then building off of that, are there, as people, you know, are trying to design their lifestyle and really figure out ways to, um, you know, improve their health and wellness, like, which is really the end goal of what we're trying to do is trying to get as many healthy people out there in the world as possible. Um, how, how should people maybe you, cause I think there's a lot of negatives that go on in the world of like using scales right? And there's a lot of negatives that come with people like just wanting to re- rely on the mirror. Um, while they can be extremely valuable tools for analyzing these things, are there any 
um, like good biomarkers maybe that you would look to for somebody to maybe analyze how are how am I progressing on this wellness journey? Or do you recommend people use somebody else as like a resource to be like, hey, you are making good progress so they don't have to rely on themselves? Where do you stand on that? Well, I think actually, Nick, you brought up something before you were mentioning some of the work like with one of your clients where, you know, it was sort of like not having that recognition of what actually has been accomplished and connecting how they feel. I think subjective uh, well-being, and that's, you know, speaks to really kind of how content we feel in our lives and with our lives, but just subjectively how people are experiencing their journey towards wellness, right? I think that's so highly overlooked because I do think we tend to look more like clinical outcome measures, right? And that speaks a little bit to what I alluded to before of process goals versus product goals. So the product goals, and this isn't to say, again, it's a both and. That's like a favorite phrase of mine, both and. It's not one or the other. It's wonderful, you know, to have goals because we do know, for example, you know, reductions in weight, even by as little as five or 10% can have significant impacts in terms of improving health and well-being. But if we use a product goal like that, so, you know, maybe it's to lose 25 pounds. What's helpful because that will take time to see, right? So that's the part that I think creates so much kind of disaccord for people is, you know, when you don't see that instantaneously, when we are, you know, accustomed to a world where instant gratification, right? So many things are tailored to kind of leverage that. But things that we know will take time, how can we focus on the process goals of that? So actually the completion of those action steps, because we know as you keep completing those action steps, right? So we haven't seen 25 pounds of weight loss yet, but the fact that, you know, today I went on a 20 minute walk, we've achieved that goal. And we know the more we keep achieving and completing those action steps, that's actually how we reach the end outcome. So I think that's helpful first and foremost to have recognition of, you know, kind of the combination of different types of goals. But then here's the next piece that really speaks to your question, Brendan, which is ultimately, how can we measure, right? Like, how is this going? Because that is helpful, right? If we're not seeing the change on the scale, especially as you know, quickly and readily as we want to see, what else can we be assessing? And you actually mentioned something from your own journey where you said, you know, wow, when I integrate physical activity into my day, I feel more energized, right? These aren't things to be taken lightly. This is where I think, again, subjective measures get highly overlooked. I say in research they do too, where we're like, we always want, you know, that we want to do quantitative research. There's a lot to be said about qualitative or my favorite and my kind of approach, a mixed methods approach, which is it's good to have those kind of, you know, those clinical outcomes. So we can measure things like A1C, right? Blood pressure, heart rate, things of this nature, but also to actually have kind of subjectively from individuals, how do they feel? Do they feel more energized? I know from our research studies where individuals are, again, adopting a predominantly plant-based diet, they feel more energized. They feel things like, I just have more mental clarity, right? I just feel like these are the things that I think should be held in conjunction with. Then we also do our clinical measures and we see significant outcomes in terms of improvements in weight, improvements in A1C or whatever else our studies might be measuring. But I think that combination of really tuning into what's an individual's experience. I think there's a lot of richness there, but to tell you the truth, we often don't ask about that. Usually it's just like, okay, we'll tell you, did your blood pressure improve or not? Is your weight the same or did it change? And I think there's a lot we could explore there and that could really illuminate for people 
the true potential with these various health behaviors. It's not just to lose weight, though that can be a great goal, but there's other benefits to find along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, I think this piece about perspective taking is so important. Um, It brought me back to how you touched on self-reflection. It was a big piece in like your journey and then also uh, the work that you do. But I, I think that that's where maybe the, the idea of like journaling comes in, in hand of like, how am I feeling in this moment? What has gone over the past week? And then you can really start to see that like, oh, maybe I am making um, some, some significant progress or maybe these are some areas that I still want to have progress in. And I, uh, I thought too about acceptance and commitment therapy, which is something that I started to learn more about recently. And I, I really enjoy it. Um, and it's just all about like negative feelings that come up. You got they're going to be there. You just have to accept them, let them go. Um, and there's a metaphor that they use and it's um, tug of war with the monster. And the monster is these maybe negative emotions like depression or anxiety. And the more that we pull against these feelings, the more that they're going to be experienced and it's going to be tougher and tougher. And so it's better to just let go, let the monster fall off, take the rope um, and we'll be free of that burden. And I think that's very similar in the context of like working out or wellness in that if we feel this pressure and need to achieve this perfect person or this perfect sense of wellness, then we're always going to be tugging on that rope. Like there's never going to be a sense to where we're going to acknowledge our progress and let go a little bit. And that's, yeah, it's so dangerous because there's probably, I feel like there's so many people who are doing so many good things in this context, but they don't see it. And so maybe they fall off. They take an extended break that turns into a lot of bad habits um, and it's really hard to reclaim those good habits. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it can be a dangerous cycle. I feel it's, it's unfortunate. Well, you bring up something that I think is so important when we talk about, again, the multidimensional nature of wellness, emotional well-being. And I see this often come up too, where, you know, as you mentioned, as humans, we will have an array of emotions. This is helpful knowledge for all of us to have that, This isn't something where, you know, if we have various emotions, ones that quote, I use my air quotes, negative emotions, right? That people feel like somehow they're not being successful, right? They're not living well. But the recognition that these are all part of the experience and the opportunities to cultivate more positive emotions. Notice it's not only positive emotions. And I think uh, Susan David does a great job talking about the toxic positivity, right? Of like, it's like only good emotions all the time. Good, good, quote unquote. And I think for people to recognize that, you know, life is dynamic. It's multifaceted from an emotional perspective, the opportunity. And you mentioned a great practice like journaling, for example, that we do know increases positive affect, more positive emotions. And I think the more we can do that, and to use, you know, kind of some framework from Dr. Martin Seligman, you know, field of positive psychology, where we really flourish is in having more positive emotions. Notice it's not only (laughs) positive emotions, but to really be able to, you know, kind of, as you said, sort of that in that tug of work, kind of the tipping of the scales as another kind of way to look at that, but to recognize that the human experience is multifaceted. And even as you share too, another piece kind of building from the behavioral side, the recognition that lapses are inevitable. 
it means life's going to happen. Even when you've got a good momentum going, right? You've been engaged in whatever habits you've been engaged in. Life will inevitably happen, right? You'll be out of town. You're on vacation. Something happens in your family with work. The recognition of that is helpful for people to have awareness that there will be bumps in the road, so to speak. And that's a natural part of the journey. We will encounter those bumps in the road. But here's what we want to do is how do we overcome kind of those those bumps in the road, those roadblocks, so to speak, so we don't revert all the way back to the start of our journey, right? Where we're no longer engaged in those helpful behaviors. So again, this is helpful perspective for professionals to have in working with real life individuals and for individuals to have about themselves as well, to see that, you know, a momentary step back. I think of, I love the game Shoots and Ladders. You guys remember that game? Yeah. It's a fun game, but you know, there was different, like sometimes you went, you know, took a step forward and you kind of went up the ladder. Sometimes you took a couple more steps and then you went back down. Yeah. <laughs> what we want to hopefully avoid is the full, the big shoot that took yeah. you all the way back. Got to avoid that big slide. <laughs> Which we can. And that's the exciting part. But to yeah. have recognition for people that it isn't this perfectly curated life like you see on social media. I think showing the complexities and the beauties of the human experience, it's essential if we do want people to actually leverage the possibilities and potential that comes with, you know, enacting these various health behavior changes. Yeah. I think it's such an interesting, like just to like more further reaffirm the fact that like, this is such a multifaceted conversation we're having. I love that we even are even coming full circle in the fact that we, my, this stemmed off of my question of like, how can people like hold themselves maybe accountable in a healthy way? And we started talking about journaling and cognitive behavioral therapy as a way of like furthering that and cognitive behavioral therapy in a way is very tied in tightly with like stoic philosophy and one of the like most common documents of stoic philosophy we have is meditations by marcus aurelius written two thousand years ago which was literally a personal journal that he was keeping for himself to you know, reinforce the habits of a lot of the things that turned in to CBT. So it's like, it's like so funny. It's right there in front of us, like just observing these people's practices that were like time tested really, and just utilizing them for ourselves can really have a great impact on us, you know, bettering ourselves. But it goes back to the DJ analogy. Yeah. Like this has actually been wisdom that's been accessible to us for a long time. That's why right. I always feel compelled, even as I was sharing parts of, you know, different models of wellness and you know, definitions of health. These things have been around for a long time. And then my goodness, we can go back, like you said, thousands of years to things. And this speaks to, again, long before there were randomized control trials. Like I'm a science geek. I love research. And there's so much ancient wisdom too, right? Before we officially studied it. And some things still to this day, because they are multifaceted, they don't always fit neatly into the randomized controlled trial type of model. But there's so many things that we can glean from, you know, various fields of study, different professionals, different areas that really can inform how we can most optimally live today in this year that we're in, right? In a, a time that feels, you know, quite turbulent. But it makes me think just thinking of, again, some of that ancient wisdom, thinking of, Nikki brought this up before about mindfulness, just even thinking about, you know, mindfulness and a quote that comes to mind. I love quotes. And I love this quote from John Kabat-Zinn, where, you know, he shares, we can't control the waves, but we can learn how to surf. 
And I don't just give that quote because I'm in sunny San Diego, California, but it's such a beautiful, you know, kind of a picture to paint about life, right? The tides of life will constantly shift and change. And sometimes we're not aware of the conditions as they're changing, right? They just kind of change rapidly, but we can learn how to surf. And I think to me that like speaks volumes. It's not just, you know, about mindfulness practice, but really about all facets of our lives. And it speaks so much about this power of perspective. And then also this recognition, just even to touch on mindfulness for a moment that, you know, kind of like many of the things we've been talking about, there's this combination of formal and informal practice. Another great John Kabat-Zinn quote is the real meditation is how you live your life. And I love that. And it's something that I, I strive, I'm only human, but I strive to really embody in my life. But I think of that so much of even when we were talking about physical activity, right? There's like the formal structured exercise, right? Which has immense value. And certainly I love both of you talking about things like strength training, because I think resistance training is a highly overlooked component when we talk about exercise. And there's so much value in that. But there's like the formal and then the informal, I'll call it, which are like the things we can do kind of throughout the day. Or in mindfulness practice, it's like, you know, you can be mindful washing your dishes, right? Like I think to help people to start to, again, expand their view of what wellness looks like. It's not only, you know, even the word self-care conjures up things like, do I have to draw, you know, a bath and it's got one of those fancy bath bombs that cost like $12 and, you know, yeah. all these things. All kinds of like, essential oils. <laughs> it's like, that's not accessible for everyone, nor is that what wellness is tied to. Can those be things to support your wellness? Absolutely. And beautiful word and, and there's much more beyond that too. So I think kind of looking through those lenses and tapping into the wisdom like you shared, Brandon, it's been around for a long time, but we just need to synthesize some of these key teachings together. Yeah. And I, this, I keep just going back to what you said earlier about practice, what we preach, because something that we always talk about too, is how we're, I mean, I'm really frustrated with like knowing that, like you're saying, people don't learn about these different research based, um, treatments like CBT or something like that, unless maybe they actually need help. Uh, and so they seek therapy or they're in a program to where it's actually being taught. And it's like, why aren't these things being implemented in our lives? Um, I know that like mindfulness based interventions are being utilized more so with like kids in schools. But I feel like growing up in school, I was just taught this information and then told like, move on, go to the next year. Um, but it was never something that I really, I feel like implemented in my life uh, until I feel like I got into a program that was like, okay, you're going to have to be teaching these things to other people. So maybe you should start to like practice them yourself. Um, and that's really unfortunate because that's what we're seeing with this societal issue of um, it's really hard to take care of yourself in, in several different ways with all these different pressures. And we're not really equipping a lot of people to do so. Um, by just maybe treating an illness sometimes or giving out all these harmful different types of foods and different things and messages. So, um, yeah, it's complex, but I just wish that there was a lot more information being given early on that was a lot more applicable to how we can really be on this journey of wellness, um, like right away so that it doesn't have to be something that like, or, okay, maybe now I should start trying to be well because I'm unwell. 
And I think this is to me, you know, even the title, as you mentioned, of my TED talk, the reclaiming wellness, because I think that word has become, you know, a word that conjures up different things for different people. I would also use a word like self-care that, again, as we were just talking about, conjures up different ideas for different people. But what we're really talking about and I think the opportunities we have for how does these the things we're talking about, which are evidence based approaches, which is so exciting, right, because we love, you know, evidence and we like to have things that aren't just, you know, kind of feel good and fluffy, which I feel like sometimes wellness gets positioned that way. But how do we take the things we know intimately, not only to have the ancient wisdom, which I think shouldn't be overlooked, in addition to, you know, the current evidence base, which also shouldn't be overlooked, but how does this become foundational to how people live, right? This isn't, this shouldn't be just kind of, you know, left to when you're unwell, as you just said, Nick, it should really be something where we challenge our society to say, how do we teach this information to people across the lifespan, right? Starting early on, I'll share with both of you, personally, as I mentioned, kind of in my journey, I I personally never had aspirations to teach physical education and health K through 12. I always had the desire to teach at the college level because of the very work that I, you know, have the privilege of doing today, which is, you know, shaping professional practice, you know, kind of more direct and especially graduate programs. People are often working in their fields already and are looking to grow and evolve. But one of the things that was so exciting for me in that journey of, you know, teaching K through 12, because through my undergraduate studies, you do a lot of practicum teaching, you have, you know, your internship your last year. And what was fun for me was, you know, I was a yoga and meditation teacher back then. And so that was things I was infusing into the curriculum, which was like, This was very, (laughs) I was a little bit ahead of my time. I was also doing this in rural South Carolina, which was another uh, interesting dynamic to it. But it was just this opportunity. I felt like, wow, if people could be equipped with this knowledge and these skills and these practices, what could be possible for them later in life when they do encounter challenges, right? When they navigate the complexities of the human experience, how amazing they could have these quote unquote tools in their tool belt, so to speak. And I just feel like there's such an opportunity across all ages, right? Starting early, I think is always nice because it enforces this is a central, you know, core component, not something if we have time to attend to our wellness, which is kind of the approach that, you know, I think many of us as adults find ourselves in. It's like, yeah, but amidst amidst the competing priorities, right? My wellness often goes by the wayside. Kind of brings me back to the question you asked of like, what were those catalysts for me? You know, my mom was the quintessential mom, just always caring for others. And what always felt so challenging to me was that she didn't care for herself in the ways that I think could have been most nourishing for her. I'm excited she does those things now. But I think that's where a lot of things come from. I won't make that only gender specific, because often you hear kind of the mothering aspect of women. But I think it's all people, you know, we often give so much of ourselves to others. And this is the practice what you preach. How can we really best be the best mother or father or sister or brother or, you know, student or professional if we're not caring for ourselves? So to shift this kind of narrative of like self-care is selfish, right? To see that it's like the oxygen mask analogy, right? You always appear on a plane. You put on your own oxygen mask before you affix that to somebody else. And this is essential. This is essential in all facets of our lives. And I would love for us as a society to really make our health and wellness a priority because in doing so, we actually support the collective 
health and well-being. And I think we enable people to truly thrive. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember where I heard this, this quote, but it, it just reminds me of a, like to relate what you're saying to the, the sick care system, as we called it, is that, we, you know, the, um, there's the analogy of the hospitals and the doctors are like lifeguards and the health and wellness folk are like, uh, swim and swim coaches. And when you need a lifeguard, you just need a lifeguard. But when you're not, when you're not needing a lifeguard, you probably just needed a good swim coach. So I think, you know, getting more swim coaches and normalizing this idea of like having a healthcare, a health and wellness professional in your life before you need a lifeguard to continue the analogy is like something that, yeah, I think really needs to be more normalized in, in society. Cause yeah, like I think a lot of people would benefit from just a general wellness person in their life, but it's just like, it seems like such a, a luxury item to have to a lot of people, unless they've prioritized it, which is just, you know, it's a mindset change in society that will, will be facing over the next few year decades, I think really. Well, and that's what, you know, it's exciting to me, I guess I'm, I'm the perpetual optimist, which is good for my health and well-being. So says the literature, <laughs> yeah. but to, to say though, you know, I think there is more of this increasing recognition of the health and wellness professional. In particular, I've mentioned health and wellness coaching because that actual, you know, that is an identified profession now that's had a lot of exciting movement in the last couple of years, particularly the integration of health and wellness coaches into clinical systems of care, both on the prevention side, as you're mentioning, and then also even as part of the treatment side. And I chair, you know, I think this is also where lifestyle medicine is so exciting that, you know, even for people who do find themselves faced with chronic health challenges and conditions, you know, what's possible for them to, again, move in the direction of wellness and to go for a moment just with our practice, what you preach kind of theme, because not only, of course, for wellness professionals, but also it's been very interesting to see in the literature that even for physicians, physicians who practice these various health behaviors we're talking about, right, engage in regular physical activity, you know, eat a healthful diet, they're more likely to counsel their patients about those very things, both from a prevention and treatment perspective. And it's so neat to see kind of nuanced in the literature. We were talking before about exercise, right? You have kind of, you know, from the aerobic side of things, you know, cardiorespiratory exercise and then resistance training, more the strength side. It's funny to even see, depending on what the physician does him or herself. So let's say they're very engaged in strength training. They'll be more likely to counsel a patient specifically on strength training. Cause again, they practice what then in turn they preach. So I love just us thinking, again, this is what's been so exciting for me, you know, with the graduate program that I teach within and the kinds of students, because we're like the true multidisciplinary care team, right? We talk about that in theory, but I'm like, our program, we live it. We live that in practice of having all these, you know, shared, but also diverse perspectives and different professional hats. But we always come back to the point that we have to put this into practice ourselves if we're ever to help individuals, our clients or our patients put that into practice in their own lives. But I agree with what you're sharing too, which is also this broad idea. We need a more multifaceted team that people rely on so that, you know, just like someone says, of course, you know, I go to a doctor for my health, right? Like that's a care team member, you know, I would love to see that, that wellness professional. And I think it will be the health and wellness coach that really is also an integral part of people's care teams. Yeah. Yeah. I this has been 
I think just helpful for me because I think, um, I mean, I feel like most people always put some type of pressure on themselves to attain a certain wellness. Um, but like hearing the word continuum and seeing you draw that out in the Ted talk, I think was just helpful for me and knowing that like, like anything, this is going to be a process and there are going to be times to where I go back and I go forward. Um, but just, yeah, maintaining some optimism, maintaining some good practices when I can, uh, is going to be beneficial. So, um, yeah, thank you for just sharing all this information. It's, it's been really informative for me and I know it's going to be helpful for a lot of people. Oh, thank you for the opportunity yeah. again. And I appreciate, you know, just bring that recognition and I come back to the quote, like, enjoy the journey. Like life is such this beautiful journey. It doesn't mean, you know, again, the shifting tides of life, there will be ebbs and flows, but there's so much richness to exploring the journey itself. And so instead of just thinking of the outcomes or, you know, to recognize what could be possible. And the beauty is we never arrive at uncovering all the possibilities. It's this ongoing journey. And so I hope individuals will seize that opportunity to see their health and their wellness as that continuum, as this lifelong journey with so much to discover along the way. Yeah. So in kind of a wrap up fashion, I've got a question and um, I'm stealing this question from another podcast that's kind of on the health side of stuff. So um, if uh, anybody who recognizes this question recognizes it, that's where I got it from. They probably know. Um, if you were to give three pieces of advice to somebody who's looking to take the next step in their health and wellness journey, what three things do you think could have the most impactful, um, the most impact on their health? Oh, this is a really good question. You gotta question. choose like, three. I know, I was like, do I really only have to choose three? Okay. If you got challenge. a bonus one, you can make it four, yeah. <laughs> That's just good, I'm gonna challenge myself. I'm gonna okay. stretch okay. to say, okay, I'm keeping it to three. Uh, the first one that comes to mind, it kind of stems from that quote I shared from John Kabat-Zinn, right? Can't control the waves, but you can learn how to surf. Perspective is everything. It will transform your life to be open, to seeing life through new lenses. So that would be one tip because to me, it is the foundation of every facet of wellness, uh, every facet of one's life is to maybe see amidst the current ebbs and flows in life that you can learn to serve. And I think developing that resiliency and seeing life with new exciting lenses, I think is, is particularly powerful. It sounds simple. It's not easy as all good things in life. So there's more I would say on that, but that'll be my tip in summary version. Okay. I think that the second one that I would offer, you know, as a key takeaway is enjoy the process of engaging in these healthful behaviors. So one of the things we know, and again, that connection between how we think, how we feel and how we ultimately act or behave. We actually know that if when we're engaging in things like regular physical activity, if we actually have positive emotions while we're doing that, right, we have joy, we feel content, we feel gratitude. Lo and behold, there's actually this great model from Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, the upward spiral theory of lifestyle change that the more we engage in those health behaviors and have that positive affect, those positive emotions, it actually kind of builds this exciting positive feedback loop that motivates non-conscious motivations increase to continue to engage in those behaviors. So I love that I upward this, spiral. 
upward spiral, right? If, yeah. if we enjoy it while we're doing it, lo and behold, we'll be more inclined to continue to do it. And that's how we reap the greatest benefit. So I'd say enjoy the experience, more positive emotions while you're engaged in these health behaviors. And I think the last piece too, you know, that I would just share is what can you add to your life? I mentioned this before, but in the spirit of not, what should we not be doing? There's a time and place for those discussions, but I think particularly because nutrition is so powerful. It's why I'm so excited about the research I have the opportunity to be a part of, but what could you add to your life? And I think, you know, amidst the standard American diet, I think looking for those opportunities to add the kind of healthful foods that we know do promote health and healing those dark leafy greens, those intact whole grain kernels. Uh, those are all things that I think are important and exciting, but it shifts again, the perspective of not what can't I have, but what can I be adding? So those would be the three tips I would offer. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it and really appreciated this conversation. Uh, thank you both so much for the invitation. Delight chatting with you today. Yeah. And actually, before we sign off, why don't you give everybody a quick update on where they can connect with you and how they can find out more about the program that you are a part of? I would love to do that. So would love to stay connected in the spirit of knowing social connection is so powerful for health and well-being. Uh, so I am on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Dr. Jess Matthews. Uh, also my website, drjessmatthews.com. Great place to connect. And then the program at Point Loma Nazarene University, the Master of Kinesiology and Integrative Wellness. It's a fully online program by intentional design well before COVID. We were like, We've invited everyone to our house, I feel like, yeah. over the last year. We've already been online. But the reason is because we do want to meet professionals where they are. And we know our curriculum is unique. So people can learn more about the program at pointloma.edu slash iwellintegrative. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.